Cast Strength, the Whiskey Podcast, brought to you by myself, Torrin, and my brother and co-host, Ronan. Follow us on Instagram at Cast Strength Pod or on Twitter at Cast Strength Pod. Enjoy the show. Slash. And what a tune that we reggae beat is. <laughs> and welcome. <laughs> To Cash Strength, the Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined again by Ronan. How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. How are you? I'm not bad. You've been up to much? No, started taking in a wee bit of the Masters though, seeing how it's on. Is that um, the snooker or the golf? Uh, the golf. Um, When's the snooker on? <laughs> no idea, no <laughs> idea. Don't watch golf any other time, but do enjoy just putting the Masters on to see see how it goes. Is that an every year tradition or is that just because of, kind of lockdown? Oh, it's, easy, it's easy to fall asleep too in a... Like a cold spring Saturday afternoon <laughs> on the couch if you've got it on. Do you think that's what folks say about this podcast? Probably. Uh, I don't know. Well, they might just turn it off instead of falling asleep. Uh, yeah. Keeps you awake at night, maybe. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just want to start off with the Scotch Whiskey League. We'll run through the standings. Obviously, we'll have an update at the end of the podcast. Uh, but as of now, top spot, it's the long red. Second is McMahon. Third is Gone Scotia, the open day Bottling, 14 year old cast strength. Fourth is the Klein Leashed, 12 year old. Fifth, Ben Nevis, which we tried in the previous podcast, 10 year old. And then Tobermory, 12. And uh, in seventh place is our big wee beastie. Yeah, and then the World Whiskey League, we've not had many whiskies in it to be fair, but we're at the, the Waterford, yeah. the Ballet Clavin, um, and then the Method of Madness is at number two. And then the box distillery from our very first podcast is at number three, even though we, we don't think we've actually released the Waterford Method in Madness. Um, it was a long day, we'll say, for that one. So. Yeah, I, I was going to say, what, what have we learned about podcasting so far, especially from that uh, kind of... So try not to do three whiskies plus three lots of beer yeah. in one day is probably the, the lesson learned. I think that. the beer was too good, the whiskies were too good, and... Uh, uh, we might release it as a after hours bonus podcast, but uh, uh, I, I would say it's probably a struggle to listen to <laughs> um, for ourselves. Never mind anyone else. Uh, yeah, pretty much. So um, sorry. Uh, before we start discussing the whiskies on this podcast, yeah, we're 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 big preachers of shopping local or shopping independent. Of course. Yeah, we've we've taken a turn for the worst. We've done the exact opposite. Yeah, and we've went. And Try to find the best whiskey you could, included with value, yeah, from supermarkets. Yeah, so really plodding along to a local supermarket. Uh, I won't give names; it doesn't really matter. Probably most whiskey selections in supermarkets are similar. Exactly yeah. same. But we thought we would go along to the supermarket and try to find the whiskey that we thought. Uh, would basically top each other from the selection. Yeah. I think I did pretty well. I've got a kind of Bunnahaven unaged statement, uh, Sturidar. Probably butchered that name again. Yeah. What have you brought along? So we went to different supermarkets at different times and we didn't tell each other really what, what we'd had. No. Um, so I went for something. I was actually <laughs> I was actually looking for this distillery's port cask. Right, okay. Or the, the, the sherry cask finish right um, but when I went to the supermarket they didn't have it so I actually went for the, the Glen Murray Peated Classic which I just thought Speyside Distillery a little bit of peat in there it's just a little bit different yeah not knowing what you went for 
comparing them now that it's actually quite an interesting comparison. You have yeah. an Isla, which is unpated, and then a, a space side, which is peated. Yeah, so typically Isla whiskies are, of course, peated whiskies. Yeah. Buna Havens had quite a strong history of being unpeated, although yeah. nowadays they do release peated and unpeated malts. Yeah. And of course, uh, of course, Glenmore, famous, semi famous space side whiskey. But traditionally, with space side whiskies, you wouldn't automatically associate them with Pete so, of course not. So, I, I, so I went along with that and the, the most important thing about it that I seen it was on sale at the time right. <laughs> so it was really quite cheap um, I suppose we'll decide after we taste it whether it's, it's worth, worth it. it yeah definitely same with the the Buna having over to Ronan with the whiskey news so uh, not really whiskey news as such um, and not, nothing really major happening in the whiskey world I guess uh, apart from you, you can sort of see just now a lot of distilleries and companies releasing a lot of stuff a yep. lot of different releases maybe that's down to the pandemic and they're not willing to release it or not able to release it because of bottling or dry goods and such They've sort of as we move closer and closer out of what feels like a sixth or seventh lockdown, mm. you can see a lot more releases coming up. Do you think maybe some distilleries have struggled in terms of they've not had the whiskey shows, the tastings? I know a lot of whiskies, um, I know a lot of distilleries have moved kind of online, they're doing a lot of online tastings, which is great. But do you think the kind of the kind of communication with the the consumer yeah. has been limited because of these shows, so they're really needing to release a lot of kind of special, maybe cast finishes, maybe yeah. kind of more limited edition bottlings, yeah, uh, just to catch the eye of the consumer. Yeah, I, th- I think there's a, a number of reasons why you probably see now a lot more um, limited edition or special releases being released now. And the boring side of it is the fact that not being able to get packaging or, uh, or labels produced be- or uh, uh, being bottled due to COVID restrictions or just delays in shipments and stuff but again a lot of distilleries and a lot of companies will base releases around big whiskey festivals and they mm-hmm. launch new products at major yeah. whiskey events and because they've not been happening on the online is as is, is good as it is as a, a stopgap really between actually being at whiskey festivals it's not really something you want to base your whole release on I would say Um, I could be wrong Um, so we're seeing a lot more coming out now and then more and more festivals being announced and that's really the one thing I want to sort of speak about and it's the second year of the Our Whiskey Festival our whiskey festival. So it's our, not, not yours. Not, not yours and I. Not Cast Red Whiskey Festival. No, not yet. We're not, we're, no, we're not, <laughs> this isn't the second one. That's just, uh, that's just every Saturday night. Yeah. So it's the Our Whiskey Festival. It was co-founded by whiskey writer Becky Paskin, and yeah, yeah. The head of ad- advocacy uh, incubation brands Bacardi, uh, Georgie Bell. Okay. Yeah. Right. So they started uh, Our Whiskey and. From the website, it says our aims is to inspire people all around the globe to explore whiskey further. Um, so in 2020, they started the, the, the inaugural virtual whiskey festival, as most whiskey festivals were last year. Uh, a charitable initiative designed to bring whiskey makers and whiskey drinkers closer together through, that, through the digital space. Now, if you ever look at our whiskey online, that means it's, it's, it's saying things that pretty much everybody should or does agree with um, and the idea is to essentially promote 
and inspire women within the whisky industry um, and how much of a big influence women have within the whisky industry. Mm-hmm. Whisky is often in the past and currently today been dominated by men mm-hmm. and there is the, the one thing our whisky is very good at, especially what I always see on Instagram is how inclusive inclusive they are and how maybe accidentally sexist some advertising can be within the whisky industry yeah. when it comes to portraying women. Seen, I think I've seen that. Yeah. So they've set up the whisky festival and it's launching for the second year. It's the 29th of April to the 27th of May, so it's spanning quite a long time. Uh, the themes and charity of what they've got is that this year is uh, a five-themed five-themed sessions designed to help you explore whisky. We're having a lot of fun and also raising money for charity as well. Um, they will donate any profits made from the Whiskey Festival, which is sponsored by a number of brands, but any profits go to the Drinks Trust to help support uh, the drinks industry professionals that have been um, greatly affected by the coronavirus um, pandemic. And last year, I think they raised around £12,000 for the Drinks Trust. Right. So it's it's a great festival to get involved in, and there'll be a lot of, sort of exclusive bottlings and tastings and such, but the, the Our Whiskey sort of really came to light fairly recently uh, upon the release of a book um, that majority of everybody disagreed with some of the things that were written in there and it really sort of I thought came to the forefront and it's great to see that their, their whiskey festival is back again in terms of other news absolutely nothing what a very great cause uh, when do we collect our sponsorship money for that I will, we'll send five minute advertisement uh, just give them <laughs> we'll send them that five minutes and uh, go right, come on get, I'll take a ticket it doesn't matter how good the cause are we still need a wee bit of, you know, <laughs> a few drums and a few years uh, we'll see if we can get a wee slot in it um, yeah I've, I've got no other no other um, uh, sort of whiskey news I guess the only wee thing is I've recently found what is known as fakebooze.com which, right. is, which is sort of a little bit like the whiskey sponge I guess if you ever see any of that and it's just a, a taking the piss really out some of the things that happen in the, the whiskey industry that more often than not it takes itself far too serious so if you've never read any of the articles or the sort of posts and stuff that either fake booze or the, the whiskey sponge do online I check them out because they can, be, they can be quite funny I'll need to check it out what beer you got today for us? So beer, uh, I mean everybody knows we're a fan of, if you've listened to the podcast before, you'll know that we're a fan of the Red Ales, so I found in shopping in my local uh, shop for beer, um, I didn't buy that from the supermarket, I bought the Galway Bay Brewery, I bought the Bay Ale, the Red Ale, this little can, 4.4%, and... Founded in 2009, independently owned and operated brewery based on St. Galway on the west coast of Ireland. Um, what about yourself? Well, we're not very interesting, I suppose, with our first beer. We're not very different. I went for an amber ale, uh, kind of classic Belgian, a true Belgian original, uh, Paul Clack. Um, and they've been brewing since 1791. So he's a little bit older than in the Galway uh, Bay Brewery. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, kind of a classic. Belgian amber ale. We're both kind of simple in our style when it comes to beer. I suppose we like red ales. We like trying new things. I suppose I like more of a, a sour beer. But, yeah, I'm not a sour but beer. you can't go wrong with an amber ale. Uh, it's just a kind of classic style, a red and an amber ale. Some of the, it's one of the things. See when you go to a, a, a pub or a bar or whatever, and they've got red ale on tap, either from the. Sort of, barrel aged or whatever from, from the real ales or whatever see if I see a, a red ale because it is so uncommon to usually see in pubs and stuff mm-hmm. 
just don't do it anyway. Yeah. I don't even think about it. But like I, I like what I usually like, but I thought, oh, no, if it's already, we'll sort of go for it. Go for it. And yeah. Give it a go. Give it, always give it a go, yeah. Right, well, we get on to the first whiskey. We're going to start Absolutely. off with the Unahaven Sturadar. Sturadur, Sturadar. Yeah, pretty much. Obviously, um, from Unahaven Distillery. I'd like to speak a wee bit about the distillery, you know, as we normally do, a wee bit of the kind of history. Yeah. Uh, I think it uh, paints the scene, you so know. It sets the scene, paints a picture. Paints a picture, one of those, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, founded in 1881 by William Robertson and brothers William and James uh, Greenlees. Built on the kind of north-east coast of Isla, I know they kind of, they've, um, Push the fact that the most northerly uh, distillery on Isla. Yeah, I don't understand the point in that. I guess every distillery's got to have their tagline, but yeah. every distillery uh, is really north of anything. Uh, yeah. Isla is a, an island off the west coast of Scotland. I'm sure many of you will know. And but, we spoke about previously. Yeah, we spoke about previously, but it's not very big in the grand scheme of things. No. I'm not sure how actually long that island will be, but it's um, 50 miles maximum, probably not even. Yeah, right. Uh, so I, I don't think it's much of a claim, but that's just me being uh, pernickety. Uh, it's built uh, in the village of Bunahaven. Uh, the village of Bunahaven was established in 1881 as well to house the distillery workers. So and they don't o- only build industry, they house the workers as well, which I'm a big fan of. And as we all know, Isla is and was a great place for producing whiskey. Yeah. Uh, still to this day, they're, they're producing new distilleries as well as still producing the kind of more classic malts. This particular part of Isla, northeast coast, I quite like the, the sound of the area. It's kind of protected from that kind of westernly Atlantic yeah. wind. Uh, kind of we're from Camel Town. You know the weather, what the weather's like. Yeah, and, and that part of the world is not very nice. The more shelter you can get, the better. The better. Yeah. So on Isla, uh, probably most of the distilleries are kind of down near the coast. But you've got this coastal climate. You've got uh, loads of natural spring water. Uh, obviously to accommodate all these distilleries uh, you've got loads of rain of course to accommodate all these distilleries water needs and you've got loads of peat but I don't want to get into the peat with uh, yeah, the distillery because in regards to this whiskey the Sturadar it isn't a peated whiskey Bunahaven isn't as famous for its peated whiskey as it is for its kind of unpeated whiskey uh, but another thing I like about Isla it has an abundance is its uh, natural harbours which allows for kind of easy access from kind of sea vessels boats as a normal person would call them <laughs> uh, <laughs> sea vessels sea vessels you know I've always thought about Isla they have a abundance of submarines kicking around <laughs> they've got boats and ships yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, and that's why you've got the majority of the distilleries are right down by the sea yeah you've got the most famous pictures white walls cool. yeah. you've got them hard big you know it's, it's famous for that and that's why you've got certain kind of Isla distilleries the warehouses are below sea level I don't think the famous one is Bunahaven but there's the kind of famous whiskey casks that are stored below sea level because right. the, the, the warehouse is like dug into yeah. the ground and I think this is why the kind of the kind of closeness to the sea from Bunahaven is why I would kind of encourage you to nose your whiskey okay. uh, as, I, I, as I'm um, 
waxing lyrical about Bunahavan. Yeah. Uh, it's also why Bunahavan I've really went after the kind of maritime seafarers or kind of mariner theme that yeah. you'll see from the bottle uh, on other bottles. And this is why the bottle has been called Sturidar, which is Scottish Gaelic for helmsman. And I guess the helmsman is the man who's at the helm of the boat. Not the sea vessels. The sea vessels. Yeah. Not to be confused with the Battle of Helm's Deep, which of course is a fictional Lord of the Rings book by uh, George R. R. Tolkien. Right. Do, not, just, do not confuse a battle within a book in a mythical land with this whiskey. Well, I got it confused, yeah. so I just thought I would... When I first uh, seen it, I thought it was like Helaman. Right, which okay. was another, 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 obviously another whiskey brand, but yeah. Helmsman in reference to the the Helmsman within yeah. the within the sea vessels. Interesting facts about the Battle of Helms Deep. We're also <laughs> very good. I'm liking where this is going. We're also, <laughs> we're also familiar with. Yeah. So I could maybe ask you. Right. Okay. What was the name of the fortress in the Battle of Helms Deep? Oh. Eh, Helm's Deep, Helm's Deep. It's, it's, what, obviously once you say it, and this is a stupid thing to say, but obviously once you say it, I'll know it, but it's, yeah. it's, it's in the sort of... So often it's confused with the fortress being called Helm's Deep. Yeah. But in fact, it's the Hornburg. Hornburg. Which uh, I've always found quite interesting. Anyway, we'll move on. A bit about the distillery. They've got a 12.5 tonne mash tonne, mm-hmm. which is big. They've got six Oregon pine wooden washbacks, which we like a lot on the yeah. show. We like the wooden washbacks. Interesting enough, well, I found it interesting. Uh, they've got six wooden washbacks, as I just said. They're 100,000 litres each. Right. They only fill the washbacks up to 66,000 litres. And that's because during fermentation, you've got a kind of rigorous process going on, which causes a lot of carbon dioxide. Right. As we all know, and that causes bubbles. If anybody's had the chance to kind of poke their nose in a closed, uh, slightly open the fermenter or washback, uh, they'll see uh, it's full of kind of carbon dioxide. They'll get the whiff of it on the nose, but then they'll also be able to see the reaction happening in the bubbles. Yeah. Uh, so they're only filling these up just kind of over about two thirds full. I've got two pairs of stills. What I like about these stills mm-hmm. is they're kind of very striking shape. Okay. And they're very striking. In- Anyway, because you associate the copper pot still with being this kind of shiny, uh, kind of really impressive uh, kind of copper, obviously, uh, in colour. But they've never cleaned and they've never polished their stills. So they've kind of got this kind of brownish kind of colour to them. But it looks looks really beautiful. But what I found out, what I found about these stills kind of interesting was the shape of them. They're a pear shape. Right, and you okay. think, well, most most stills are yeah, shaped, yeah, in a pear shape ish. Yeah, but what these stills don't have is a part of the still called the ogi or the ogi, yeah. maybe pronounced, and that's the bit between the pot, that's uh-huh. the big bottom bit where you yeah. fill your you fill your kind of your wash or your your low wines into, and the neck. So most Scottish distilleries or a lot of Scottish distilleries between the pot and the neck, you've got this ogi, okay. and that's yeah. the kind of bulbous onion type. Yeah, shape a sort of bubble that uh, in the neck. Yeah, it looks like yeah, yeah. kind of a standard thing in some shape or form at Scottish distilleries. Yeah. They don't have that. They've just got the pot, and then it's the straight, straight neck. Neck. Stills with an augie 
will have more surface area causing more vapour to condense when it's boiling up yeah. more vapour will condense which causes more reflux mm-hmm. and that in turn leads to a lighter spirit yeah Buna Haven don't have that okay. but what they do have is very tall striking uh, necks yeah. uh, stills so it will be interesting to see if there is a more kind of heavier style spirit mm-hmm. in the whiskey we were just about to try yeah, because it's not got as you were saying because it's not got that boggy yeah. in the middle yeah that no matter what shape and form it mm. appears in it's just not got that same opportunity the spirit to condense exactly it's just straight up the straight up the neck yeah um but be- as as if the still is taller that's what I was, I was thinking because it's harder for the because the, to escape because the neck is so long yeah at all would that not also then encourage condensation to happen yeah, as well that's my point that's my point exactly when you have an augie there you've got spirit you've got vapor condensing directly above yeah the pot but because they have a, a kind of tall neck yeah you might it's going to be harder for the vapor to travel up there yeah. anyway the tall in the neck but I, I just found it quite interesting and i really wonder uh, if we're going to be able to taste it such a dramatic like if there is such a dramatic uh, change in the, the, the flavour what do you think of the, the whiskey when you're trying it there so on the nose I wrote down initially my first thought was it was quite malty quite nutty quite sort of not, not fresh but not fresh in the sort of youthful side of it but very sort of clean cut there wasn't yeah, as you would expect, it's, it's yeah, a, a slightly mass-produced product in the sense that it's not going to have any off notes or anything like that, but just very fresh and clean and not really often a lot in the nose mm-hmm. initially. So I started to smell it a little bit more. It's like, it's like salted caramel and sort of very soft coastal notes. Yeah. Um, not overbearing, like you would find as we would say, maybe in a... Uh, an Ardbeg or a Lafroig obviously there's peated in there a Campbelltown whiskey there's not that coastal or a Talisker there's not that fucking immediate coastalness mm-hmm. it's very very soft very very gentle on the nose yeah what about yourself well I should I should have mentioned before uh, the percentage of the whiskey is 46.3% it's natural colour it's unsure filtered mm-hmm. you know I think around the 2010s uh, having made the decision to stop adding colour, stop chill filtering, mm-hmm. increase the percentage of bottling up from 40 or whatever to 46.3. Yeah. And interestingly enough, this is first and second fill sherry casks, which I think might change your kind of mindset. Because as I'm, as I'm nosing this whiskey, I do think it smells a wee bit fresh. Yeah. I think it maybe is a wee bit on the kind of younger side not three years old probably but, I mean age is doesn't always matter to a whiskey does yeah. it there's some whiskies that are brilliant and very young but I think it is a wee bit on the fresher side I'm getting a like kind of salty uh, sea kind of flavour dark berries if you're saying like although a podcast and speaking about the colour isn't usually the best idea mm. you say this is first fill second fill sherry casks yeah just off the colour and even on the nose yeah you're not getting any of that yeah the, the colour is the colour is your classic barley golden straw mm-hmm. sort of colour just maybe a wee bit darker than yeah. that kind of golden barley type but it's got a very typical imagine what a whiskey colour is it's got that sort of 
It's got a very yeah. bourbony matured whiskey colour about it. You know, I, I, I know this whiskey. I'm beginning to have kind of... I've got a lot of thoughts going around in my head. I'm getting that kind of berries, as I said. I'm getting a lime and slight sweetness of toffee. And mm. this is where it comes and it, and it kind of uh, matches up with exactly what you're saying there. This isn't typical. This nose isn't typical of a sherry cast matured whiskey. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think there's a potential lot of influence from the second fill sherry cask. Yeah. So there's a lot less influence from the sherry and a lot more influence from the cast, the wood. Yeah. You think the first fill sherry, the whiskey that was in the first fill sherry cask, yeah. would have took a lot of that sherry influence and then yeah. you put another whiskey in it, you put another spirit in it, and I think that's what we're getting a lot of influence is and there's another point which I've found quite interesting for a time and it's a a kind of maybe not a mistake but it's kind of a misconception that sherry cask always means European oak yeah but it doesn't it can be American oak yeah sherry producers can buy American oak uh, barrels casks uh, butts hogsheads uh, from America, obviously American oak, and then and then therefore a second fill American oak sherry cask, it would be more typical to find these kind of toffee notes, floral, vanilla, caramel, which I'm kind of getting from the nose. And I'll go even further. This is due to the chemical makeup of the wood, yeah, of the American oak cask and the differences between that American oak and the European oak. Uh, in an American oak, you've got more flavouring part and compounds, congeners such as vanillin, mm-hmm. or even a spicy kind of coconut flavour. Yeah. This is due to an, an increased number of whiskey lactones, both trans and cis, right. that you get in American oak, and you just don't get in an abundance from European oak. Right, okay. So when this whiskey has been put in well when the whiskey that was the first fill yeah. of these second fill casts yeah. and put in that I reckon that would have got the majority of the sherry, sherry influence then this whiskey has been in a majority second fill sherry cast which has been made from American oak right, okay. and that's why you're getting this more nut- typical what people would associate with bourbon what, yeah. we, would, what we would associate yeah, with, exactly. with bourbon style you're getting that kind of toffee that nuttiness that vanilla it's a beautiful note. I actually, yeah. I'm liking the nose, but I, it just it set my brain running there when I was nosing it. I just thought this isn't this doesn't add up, and the kind of cherry cask always been European oak meh. Yeah, it's kind of something I've, you're thinking about. I've been thinking about for a while. Yeah, but yeah, what you what you, your assumption from nosing this and, and doing a little taste is that the second fill what we're looking at is that maybe the second fill is actually American oak that's been used to produce sherry and yeah. after because it's a second fill the first fill it stripped the, the, the major sherry influences out yeah. and what we're getting here is the American oak the, the vanillins being more drawn out and influencing the whiskey yeah. itself I've took, a, I've took a wee a wee taste of it there I'm getting a lovely oily mouthful but I'm getting that nuttiness again mm. and now I'm actually starting to really believe my theory that I just put out there from the nose. Aye. Just just through experience of tasting whiskey. Yeah. I might be wrong. I might be very wrong. There is, a, there is a good chance. 
I'm putting I'm putting my argument out there and if yeah. anybody knows any different yeah. of why this whiskey tastes like it's been matured in second fill American sherry casks. Yeah. I think it's got a lot. Not American sherry, but second fill casks. Second fill sherry casks that were made yeah, from American, American oak, oak. Um, to be precise. It's got on the the palate I'm, I start to get a lot of the a, a more subtle good influences of sherry mocha coffee beans sort of ground coffee beans a little bit of chocolateness in there a little bit of brown sugar mm-hmm. raisins probably going back to the sort of berries the red berries that we were talking about earlier but the, you start to get a little bit more of the sherryness about it yeah but you still maintain the what we're saying is the, the slight second fill influence a little bit of malted maltiness in there nuttiness a little bit of licorice in there for me as well yeah um, but then the, the caramel the, the toffee really coming through with it I've took a wee palette there and I've added a drop of water just before I did as well just soaking this whiskey up I like how you said raisin because I'm thinking raisin as well mm. but I'm thinking dried peach and raisin mm-hmm. with kind of nut do you know that mixed bag you can get from the the supermarket or I can remember I can remember my mum having it when we were young oh please yeah. that's what it is do you know the wee box you go through the letterbox and it's got all the little bits Aye, and it's like kind of mixture of dried awful, peaches awful, awful, awful stuff you wouldn't eat awful well yeah. probably not probably enjoy yeah, no. probably enjoy it now but when I was younger I was expecting uh, chocolate Aye. sweeties and yeah. I was expecting a, a starburst or something mm. you know uh, a midget gem almost uh, but that takes me back to that that kind of mixed peach raisin nut all dry shavings in a bag I'm getting all of this spiciness from it mm-hmm. clove all spice finish wise it's not incredibly great what does that mean doesn't really mean anything I just mean it's not giving me a big punch of flavour it's probably because this is a relatively younger whiskey yeah yeah but it's quite a long finish. It's got a lot of saltiness on it, and it's got a bit of spiciness as well. I'm yeah, enjoying it. I actually put down for, for the finish there. I thought the finish and the nose were a little bit similar. As you started getting a little bit more of the, the sort of sea salt, seaweed, coastal notes. I put. I actually wrote down sort of a, like a. Do you know the sort of rub, like a dry spice rub or something like that? But right, for, it, for me? Or? Aye, but yeah. it maybe just a little bit more of the cask influence is giving that slight spiciness to it. Mm. Um, put grapefruit down. Lovely, I've yeah. I've thrown out a bit of grapefruit there. Um, hard caramel. I've also put plantains. Plantains, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of cooked or uncooked? I've went uncooked. Right, okay. Well, I've not specified in my notes, but if, if they were cooked, I'll probably... Cooked are nice, that kind of like, you get that kind of Maillard reaction happening to the bananas, uh, sorry, to the plantains. plantains yeah. they're, they're not bananas. They're not yeah, bananas, yeah. the plantains, just like you said, but that kind of caramel outside. Yeah, it's got, it's got a little bit of sweetness, but that caramel toffiness is sort of coming through as well as well as the sort of nuts and quite creamy I put sort of down sort of almondy that's what yeah it's got a nutty it's it's, it's it's actually very very nice it's very very easy to drink and mm-hmm. um, I've not tried a lot of when I haven't um, do you think it's worth the kind of th- I think it's 30 pounds 30 maybe 35 oh, will we come to it at the end uh, no we can, we can speak about it we can okay. speak about that. I mean I don't know, 30, 30 quid to 35 quid is what you paid for it yeah are there better whiskies that you could find at that price 
Yeah, probably. About how many? No, no. I, I wouldn't uh, say you would find an abundance of them when mm-hmm. they're growing on trees. Are you going to be disappointed by spending 30 to 35 quid on that? No. No. Because it's very easy to drink and it's very enjoyable. Uh, it's uh, complex as well. Uh, it's, there's, well. Even what we're saying there about the, the difference in what we think the first fill cast to the second fill cast might be and the, the flavours that you're getting from that through from the nose to the finish. Yeah, there's a lot to think about as you're trying it. Even just one for a uh, conversation starter, I know this podcast is to have conversations over whiskey, but I think if I was sitting with a few friends in a pub discussing this yeah. whiskey, it's first and second fill sherry cast. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't have the colour. Yeah. The flavour's there somewhat, but it's kind of a wee bit different. It's a conversation starter on the whiskey. There's so many levels to that sort of conversation as you think it's an Isla whiskey, mm-hmm. and then you move into the fact it's been a habit and not the other Isle of the Silver. Uh-huh. And then you move into the, the cask maturation process and what they've done. And then you move into the fact that it's much of a unladded colour and it's very easy to drink. And it's, it's yeah, I, I'm pleasantly surprised by it. Um, was it worth the money? Would I buy it? Would I buy it again? Probably not, but was it worth you never bought it I bought it <laughs> right. would, would I buy it for a first time no because I'm just going to drink yours aye exactly I, I, I've tried a lot worse whiskies at greater the price yeah definitely yeah you're getting a natural colour you've got an unchill filtered whiskey here yeah from Buna Haven great name doesn't mean it's a good whiskey it's a, it's a distillery with a story enough yeah um, I'm qu- quite impressed with it and would I buy it again if I ran out of that, if I ran out of that bottle, yeah, I would consider it. You know, if I was in the supermarket again, wanting a bottle of whiskey, I would yeah. consider it. It's probably made me want to try a little bit of Havens. Yeah, they've been having twelves. Yeah, lovely. I, I think they've been having twelves uh, better than that. Yeah. What really actually surprised me about been having is obviously I've heard about it before. Um, I've seen it in loads of places, supermarkets. Mm. Are, um, it's kind of, from it it's, it, it's kind of a staple in pubs. It's yeah. Oh. Having twelve is a whiskey. If I'm out having a pint, and then I've decided I want a whiskey. You know what you're doing. I kind of, I've often, often kind of gravitated towards when I haven't. I don't know why. It's probably just because I've enjoyed it. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean, I've enjoyed it, and I'll go back. What surprised me about it was the actual the their outturn and what they're. I was going to say pump it out, but they're yeah. not. It's less than three million years a year or something. Uh, it's around three million. Now. It's 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 quite a small amount for a name, long. In the literal term is quite a long name, but long in the tooth. A big name. Yeah. Like people for a three minute, for just under three around three million yeah. years. It's got a big, big sort of I guess brand about it. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little bit bigger than. Like I would assume that having would maybe be up at the six or seven or eight million meters. Right, but okay. How much you see it, um, so that's surprising me as well. Um, and in particular, it's, it's not an independent distillery; it's owned by Distel. Yeah, it's a African company. Like, it's not not a small operation that's going on, but a very good whiskey to say too. Yeah, it's it's, it's maybe a, a distillery that's producing a decent amount, three million liters is a really good aye. but it's a big amount compared to a lot of Scottish distilleries. It's owned by a multinational company. I don't know too much about distill, but I presume they're a multinational company or they're um, a very large company. But then they're producing whiskey that doesn't taste mass-produced, doesn't 
kind of pander to the masses doesn't it has a story every, yeah. every distillery has their brand or kind of it has a maritime brand but it doesn't feel forced or over pushed it seems like it's got provenance it's got history and they've got a product which is really really quite nice anyway on to the next whiskey yeah the next whiskey we're trying as we, as we mentioned earlier and is the next beer yes and the next beer so the next beer uh, I'm trying is the East Coast style IPA from Kinnegar uh, it's a farmhouse brewery uh, from Donegal so I've stuck to the to the Irishness of my beers yeah I'm looking forward to it uh, it's I drank one of the Kinnegar beers uh, on St Paddy's Day I put it on uh, the Instagram story and it's part of our highlight I think you call it I think that's it was part of the beer um, highlight um, what, what was it an IPA was it? Uh, East Coast style IPA it's called the Big Bunny so hazy heavy hop-esque hop fueled. yeah and yourself what are you trying? I'm having a wee toss up here Right, I've got okay. the Juice Springsteen, which I like the name of, a tropical IPA from uh, ABC uh, Brewing, but I've tried some of their stuff before. I think we have had some yeah. of their stuff before, so I think yeah. what I'm going to go for is the Schindiger Lush Exotic IPA. Uh, is, exo- is exotic different from tropical? Uh, yeah. I was struggling to decide, to be honest. Well, you might as well go for the, the, the Schindiger, because I think the ABC we tried before was the Dortmunder Lager. Oh, it was. Yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah, I did the uh, yellow wall. Yeah, the yellow wall one, yeah. Yeah, so I'll be, I'll be trying this uh, Shindiga IPA once that poorly poured beer settles uh, down. Beer, the head settles down. But on to the whiskey. On to the whiskey. So, what we're trying is the Glen Murray Space Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, Elden Classic. It is the peated single malt. Right, okay. So, right off the bat, 40%. Boo. Yeah, so immediate thoughts from a forty percent whiskey. Yeah, I would I, I would obviously think if it's forty percent, it's probably chill filtered. It's probably had added colour. Yeah. So we like to stay above the forty six percent mark, but in this kind of supermarket sweep special, yeah, um, I would I, I would say it's more allowed because we're looking for real good quality and the prices for the price. I yeah. guess. Yeah. So. Yeah, that was my first immediate thought. It's forty percent. First thought in my head: oh, it's been chill filled. Oh, it's added colour, and I have got no evidence to to suggest that we're wrong in that yeah. aspect. Yeah. Um, at forty percent, you automatically assume it's chill filled. You think the only evidence that, in a very easy evidence to produce for a distillery, if it is unchill filtered natural colour, is to stick it on the, Whack it on the label. Yeah, yeah. Like a, and it's right. and it's not. It's not. not so safe to assume it probably, probably is. Now that I guess isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's a it's a it's a bad thing. This is some. It's a bad thing. I often think in the, the the heads of people that would describe themselves as purists within the whiskey industry who yeah. only like to drink what only drink non chill filled, no added color, cast strength, all that's the best. And you get some very good whiskies that have been chill filled and have had added yeah. color. Obviously, we don't know just yet whether that's a claim the, the, the point would be that if it's that good a whiskey, why why do 
Chill filtration. Why add colour if it's that good a whiskey? Show it and it's the closest to natural state that you possibly can. Yeah, to, to, to play devil's advocate in that point is that I do understand the the need or the want rather to chill filter and add colour. Yeah. If yeah. you've got a, a big produced whiskey yeah. that will be that is a non-age statement that is drank around the world. Mm-hmm. You want it to be, in every batch, the exact same, whether you're trying it in Glasgow, whether you're trying it in New York or Sydney or uh, Johannesburg. You're wanting it to, first of all, look, because everybody tastes with their eyes first. Uh, um, like that old classic thing, if you see a really dark whiskey, people will assume it's good. Yeah. People taste with their eyes first. So if you're wanting that conformity throughout what you do, then you chill filter and you add colour and I understand it do I agree with it that's a, that's a different how thing. many people buy a bottle of whiskey in Sydney Australia and then travel to California America and buy the same I, bottle of whiskey I guess, I guess it's not really about buying it it's compare colour I, I guess it's not or really, I guess compare flavour because if this is a big enough company to have a master blender or a head of whiskey or somebody in that position Which, like, who ensures that every batch has the same flavour through yeah. their skills, through their yeah, tasting yeah, yeah. speciality. Yeah. I can un- kind of understand maybe colour, uh, but it's, it's, it's not something I agree with. It's not something I think even makes sense. I think the argument for it, you can poke holes in it. I guess it's maybe not about buying a bottle of whiskey in Sydney and buying a bottle of whiskey in New York. It's about that if you see it on the shelf in a bar in different it's places... It's dimly lighted and you can't even see the colour of the whiskey in No, but you, if you see it and it's what you're used to drinking, mm-hmm. then if you suddenly turned up at a bar in Elgin, in Speyside, and you wanted your Glen Murray peat single malt that you always drink and it was slightly darker or slightly paler you'd be like, oh, is there something wrong with that? I can't can't remember the exact colour, the exact pigment of a whiskey (laughs) when I'm out drinking whiskey in a bar. I know you're putting devil's advocate. Yeah, I mean, I think we're arguing over something we both agree with. No, I know, I know, but I I think flavour consistency is extremely important. Oh, yeah, yeah. But that's why you have a master blender. Yeah. That's presumably what their job is to get every batch tasting exactly the same yeah, and that's yeah, why yeah. at massive distilleries you have thousands and thousands of casks cause you, so you can draw on different casks yeah. different ages you have a person in your employment a master blender with those expertise to do it yeah maybe maybe it is just on their classic Elgin classic range uh, right okay. uh, I've, yeah. I've not looked at enough other um, Glen Murray uh, releases but maybe it is just their entry level sort of range yeah. that they've decided chill filter will add colour because that gives a conformity for our basic mm. our basic entry level. And it's not just because they want to add as much water as possible down to forty percent and then when you're at forty percent you're forced to carry out these processes. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe not. Anyway. Well, this Glen Murray starts off on a, a semi-bad foot with me, but I'm going to taste it with an open mind. 
First of all, is it Glenn Murray or Glenn Murray? I'd say Glenn Murray. Right, uh, okay. Because it would be Murray Sure, It is Murray. I would then say it was Glenn Murray. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So we'll go from that. Uh, we'll go for Glenn Murray. Um, so as you know, as you dabble into the taste of it, again, I'll run through a little bit of what we usually do with it. The sort of history of the distillery. Originally built on the site of a 19th century brewery, was a brewery known as West Brewery, and um, I presume it's because it was on the west side of Elgin. This, uh, interestingly enough, it, um, the grounds that the original distillery was built on, and the brewery, was built on the site of Elgin's Gallows on the edge of Elgin Town. And right. um, what I read about it is that the gallows were to warn off uh, Highlanders. Um, I guess doing something. So there is a warning. There we did just have the practical element no, of, yeah. of uh, it's a bit like a scare, people, a scarecrow, uh, but for people. Uh, right, okay. People just chuck up gallows anywhere. If I was entering a town and I seen they had gallows, gallows. Ah, I would turn right around. Yeah, I would question. First of all, it would make me question the why they've got them there so much. I'd say, oh, I'll just, buy, I'll bypass this town, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it would actually. And that's, have, that's, they built, have they built the bypass yet? <laughs> can, I, can I take my horse and cart around it? And that's with them empty. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if they were. Uh, God forbid we had to put something up there uh, just to play the. Play. <laughs> For lack of a better word, imagine if they were full. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard well I've never heard gallows described as anything but to describe them as full there's no space up the gallows today <laughs> <laughs> right so moving on from our, from our gallow uh, uh, chat uh, it's built by a consortium Glen Murray Glen Lovett uh, the Glen Murray Glen Lovett consortium which leads me to another point is that the, the, the addition of Glen Lovett on there is um, what is described as a piggybacking of the good name of Glenlivet Distillery. As it's so often found with, with a lot of distilleries in that region, is that Glenlivet was so popular and such a big distillery at the time, which it still is, new distilleries that would pop up and release whiskies uh, would be named Glenmurray, Glenlivet, for example. And that right, was just yeah. to sort of tag them on the coattails of what Glenlivet was doing, essentially. And you see that with like Caddenhead's independent bottlings I think they're probably one of the last ones mm-hmm. Berry Brothers might do it because they're a little bit older than Caddenhead's but definitely Caddenhead's they'll release they tend to say the Space Head Distilleries especially uh, they'll be Glen Murray Glen Livet yeah and that because that's Caddenhead's yeah, that, argument I guess is that they have released the whiskies for so long that, that, that even week. goes as far as your bigger names as like McCallum than Livet mm-hmm um, bigger, bigger names now. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. You wouldn't think would need to, to have done that, but yeah, they would have released whiskies with Glenlivet sort of tagged on at the end, just to try and associate themselves with something that was doing really yeah. well. We were, we were really close to the real Glenlivet, yeah, which at that time was the creme de la creme yeah. of Scotch whiskey production. Yeah. So, eighteen ninety seven, the distillery was built. And then by 1910, so around 13 years production, it was then closed. Like many distilleries, it boomed, was created, and again, like many other distilleries, um, it fell victim to a slump uh, and then closed. Um, it wasn't long till it was snapped up uh, by McDonald and Muir in 1923, who were established blenders from the great town of Leith. 
Um, and who had also purchased Bring Up Leith, Bringing Up Leith, um, from the Independent Republic of Leith. Um, they'd also purchased Glen Moranger in 1918. Okay, so the whiskey blenders, traditional whiskey blenders are in the Lowlands, Edinburgh and Glasgow because of ease of all the distilleries coming together and, and the big the grain producers grain in producers the Lowlands. And the ability to then ship yeah. from there. So they were established in Leith and they purchased Glen Moranger in 1918 and then purchased Glen Murray Distillery in 1920. Okay. Resumed production, 1923, uh, expanding the distillery, pushing forward a wee bit in 1958, um, and that was to mostly fuel their Highland Queen blend. Right. So that's a little bit about what happened with Glen Murray and the... So that, um, that, that Highland Queen blend of the late 1950s, yeah. 1960s would have been at the boom time of Scottish blends yeah. being very well consumed by the people of Scotland and further and far. And, yeah. um, obviously at that time, single malt wasn't, wasn't the, 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 the forefront the, of folks' yeah. minds, but the distilleries in Speyside and the other kind of rural distilleries their flavoursome malt whiskey was used was a vital part for these uh, it was used in these blends yeah. to make the kind of raw lowland whiskey which is as I said was raw and kind of well it was grain based and yeah. it was whiskey. I'll pose this thought to you that's just popped into my head and see what you think okay now the whiskey industry has been predominantly carried by blends and big blends and for a lot of period of time, the only reason that distilleries were able to be open and function, produce spirit, was because there was blended whiskies, and that's what people drank. Yeah, right. In the masses, in the kind of cities. But yeah, there is also the argument. Well, there's my argument. Okay. That if it wasn't for good quality single malts being produced, the blends wouldn't have been. It's more of a circle rather than just a straight line that blends carried the whiskey industry but because this, the malt that was the, the, what would be single malt was being produced because the spirit was being produced was so good yeah. the blends were able to be so good yeah. and therefore that carried the whiskey industry if it wasn't for the well I guess the, the blenders the master blenders or the blenders at the time but using the good spirit that was there to make good blends carried the industry which then allowed the distilleries to produce single malt because they were still so good do you know what I mean? yeah no definitely it's a fair assumption or is it yeah you would reckon you'd reckon most Highland and kind of West Coast distilleries were the more it's a buzzword nowadays there were craft distilleries yeah true craft distilleries yeah. craft distilleries farm distilleries yeah and then you had the industrial business-minded factories that were producing your grain whiskies and yeah. your kind of poorer flavoured whiskies. Yeah. Uh, the Lowlands and Glasgow yeah. and Edinburgh, basically. Yeah. It's multi-faceted, the reasons why then single malts became something, became yeah. something, but maybe they just began to realise their worth. They began to realise there was... It. Uh, transportation lines yeah. uh, people consumers became more quality savvy yeah. uh, there's still these mass producing yeah. grain distilleries in the lowlands yeah. uh, particularly in the lowlands you've got across the central belt you've got kind of up there in, in Fife yeah. uh, down in Garvin and then you've got up there in Invergordon yeah. but when you look at single malt distilleries there's it's of course in the highlands across the west coast yeah uh, maybe they just realised their worth. Maybe, maybe at the time they didn't have an ability 
to market their own products yeah. and potentially just fashion chains and consumers. Yeah, consumer, uh, Part of the reason at a point Scotch whiskey boomed was because the brandy and wine industry in France uh, got their, their crops, the grapes getting yeah. infected by uh, a parasite or a, a, a kind of a bug almost. Yeah. Uh, and that's what kind of catapulted sales of Scotch whiskey. So it's not because there was something it's else not to drink. It's, it's not just the case of, yeah, this is really good, we'll drink that, because there's probably loads of good drinks about, but it was it's kind of opportunities and yeah. trends and diseased crops, crops yeah. in France, which yeah. caused a boom of whiskey I suppose in the, Scotland. The, the same could be said uh, in that aspect, the, the sort of branding, the, the, the cognac industry taking a dive because yeah. of the, the parasites and their crops and stuff, but the, the, the same with sort of in Hareth and the, the sherry regions yeah. that parasites or war or a drought or whatever could really affect the production. So therefore, another industry comes up because uh, there's, there's not. There's, there's demand yeah. for alcohol. <laughs> there's just a, dem- a, a blanket demand for alcohol yeah. and not the supply of the alcohol of choice at the time. Yeah. And move on to something. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so a large, in Glen Murray, a large Saladin malting was installed in 1958 at the yeah. same time that um, they expanded the distillery yeah. to four stills. A Saladin malting or a Saladin box. Yeah, a Saladin box. A Saladin box is an instrument used for malting barley. So it's a different way of malting barley than what we would say is a traditional floor malting. Yeah. Traditional floor maltings, in a sense, the, the barley is steeped and then drained to get to the right water, the water content of the barley after a period of time, laid out roughly around six inches or so on the floor, and then it's turned every hour, every other hour, depending on the season that you're malting that barley, till the barley is at the right moisture content and the temperature that you're looking to then put into the kiln. Yeah, well, uh, you've got the brief description. Yeah, your brief description. The most important part of that is you're tricking the barley into germination. It's spring. Yeah. Uh, so it starts to turn its uh, starch reserves yeah. into enzymes mm-hmm. and starts to turn them into sugars. Yeah. So if it was in the field, it would then sprout yeah. into a new plant. Yeah. But then that's why you go to Kilman because you're going to halt that process yeah. just at the point where then brewers and distillers can take advantage of the sugar and the, the enzymes, the amylases that are in there, they can then take advantage of them. Yeah, yeah. You're so, going for a brief one, but I just thought I would. You would expand a little bit. Yeah. So a floor mold is essentially it'd be laid out um, tons and would be then turned a bit or so to stop, as we say, the, the sort of roots and the growing and intertwining and would be become more difficult. And using up all the good sugar that yeah. we want to convert into alcohol. So, but a salad box is uh, roughly around fifty meters in length. It's a set of vertical screws attached to what would be a, a bar over the top that rake essentially within the box uh, the crossbar moves horizontally across the length of the container and in the, the motion screws and raises the barley from the top to the bottom so yeah. it's constantly sort of changing and moving everything around um, also stops it from sticking together sticking which become matted every, essentially every monster's nightmare worst eye nightmare is that your barley grows a wee bit too much and uh, becomes a kind of barley carpet on your on your malt floor. So what I've always like so you're wanting the, the individual barley grains to be separate from one another. Yeah. See if it is 
matted or a, a barley carpet, yeah. as you're saying. What's the disadvantage there? So if it becomes a barley carpet, you can't just separate it. We've seen some traditional methods, I know, in, in, in our kind of whiskey pass, yeah. you can turn it, you can grub it, you yeah. can separate it. But what happens if it becomes too, if the barley grows too much, yeah. it's using those sugars that you want to turn into alcohol. So if it... So is that purely down to uh, wasting the, 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 the growth yeah. of the sugar? You can still use it, but you just won't get as good a yield, basically. Because it's grown too much. Because it's starting to grow, right? Right. It starts converting its reserves yeah. into... Um, growing into a, 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 a plant yeah. a barley is actually a grass yeah. but if you just let that barley grow out you're not yeah. going to be able to brew it into beer or, or, or then so in turn make it into whiskey it's not necessarily about a, a production process point of view that you would, you didn't want it in that in terms of the actual machinery working and everything like that well, it, it's, it's, it's all about aerating it as well you want an even spray yeah. in the air you want an even temperature so if you let it start to mat together, mat together to carpet together there's going to be more uh, there's, going, there's going to be a great heat in the barley, which yeah. in, turn, in turn leads to more spoilage, it can start to mould. It's wet, yeah. It's right. warm, uh, and, and it, it starts to mould. You know, you don't want that, so you keep it aerated. You spread it. You spread it, but you're. It's obviously lying on top of each other, but you yeah. just don't let it intertwine. Is it so? Then, when you go to the kilning process, either hot air or paid, it's to give it a more even spread throughout. But if it's on parts of it are matted together, it's going to get a different level of hot air dried or or, or, or peat smoke dried. Uh, I presume when you took it from the malt floor, if it was carpeted, you would separated before it went into the kiln. Like, yeah. I don't think you're putting like you're not putting like tiles of barley into, into the kiln, you know what I mean? Yeah. If you did you would get an uneven spread of I don't know. I don't know if you would because I, I, I don't think anybody anyone would do it. I have not seen anybody doing it. I don't think if a distillery did do that, I don't think they would admit to it. <laughs> On that side not right, so moving back into the salad box, uh talking the the motions of the screws raise the barley from the bottom to the top. Combined with that mechanical airflow across the, the barley, it cools the barley and there's the beds of barley roughly between 24 inches, 31 inches um, to be turned two or three times a day. And then the screws are moved and turned by a system of pulleys and belts and that's just to, to move the barley and change it around again, going back to that yeah. to a point is to not let it be matted. The salad in box, invented by a French lieutenant, Colonel Saladin Charles Saladin who uh, lived from 1878 to 1942 not a long time maybe a long time at that point the lieutenant colonel a colonel a French lieutenant colonel a lieutenant colonel right okay well he would never have been on the front line (laughs) aye because he was wasting his time creating these Saladin boxes that's what he was doing he had no time for actually doing his job Um, in the late 1800s to overcome the problem with the roots of the malting barley would become entangled as what we were saying uh, if not regularly uh, turned by hand which would form large mass of unstable um, to to create unstable amounts to to allow further processing he created this Saladin box okay so this Saladin box which I've seen before yeah but obviously it's not used today but it was basically just a Big, I guess it was just a modernisation. It, it was a modernisation of floor maltings. Yeah, it was to to enable you to to malt barley on the floor, 
without actually having to go in and turn it and back turn it yourself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so the last distillery to actually use a salad in box was Tamdu in 2018. Oh really? Yeah, so that's the last distillery in Scotland to use a salad in box. That seems quite late, didn't it? 2018. For something that was created in the late 1800s to, to, be, uh, to finish actually being used in 2018, and I presume there would have been modernizations to the salad in box in that time. Um, it's yeah. quite a late thing. Uh, I mean, you've not got a, not a lot of distilleries. And then you've got drum maltings. Yeah. You've got. A bit, I, I've never been to a maltsters, but yeah, there's probably a lot better, uh, more efficient, more efficient. Yeah. And then, of course, that's there's, there's not many distilleries that do floor maltings. None that do salad and box maltings. I guess the very few distilleries that do floor maltings. We know. It is what we spoke about previously is Springbank do all the floor maltings there yeah. uh, I think Cohoman do partial floor maltings I know Highland Park do partial couple uh, yeah something like that yeah so uh, Tam itself was the last in 2018 most maltings are now outsourced which completely makes sense to be honest like it's consistency yeah uh, if you're like Springbank um, which is unbelievably unique uh, yeah, but that doesn't work for doesn't for, work for everyone. Doesn't work for everyone, and that's one of the things that are outsourced that you can kind of really, really understand. You know what I mean? It's it's consistency, it's uh, yeah. flavor consistency as well as LPA yield consistency, which is important for the distillery finance manager. Uh, but obviously the bank balance, which keeps the distillery. Going, yeah, you know what I mean. Speaking about flavour consistency, I guess, and loosely moving on to flavour, what are you getting there from the nose, the palate, you've a long time as well? Yeah, I've been nosing this whiskey. I think, first of all, it's like a sweet smoke, mm-hmm. isn't it? Getting a lovely lemon meringue pie. I'm getting that E150 caramel. No, yeah. No, 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 you're not. You're not telling me that, are you? No, I'm getting a caramel, but that that's the thing. I'm getting a caramel, and in a whiskey that isn't, Chill filtered. You would, has no you would put color. that down to the cast maturation. I would put that down to cast maturation, but also fermentation, mm-hmm. uh, where most uh, flavors in whiskey are produced. So fermentation for a Glenmurray is around sixty hours. Yeah. So above average. Sorry, right. fermentation yeah. time. Yeah, standard. Uh, but so you're getting. You think because it's forty percent. Your mind Not automatically sort of went to yeah maybe unju- maybe unjustly but I think that's what people would assume. I think that's what me personally, maybe other people would as well. But if I taste a whiskey that is ninety nine percent chill filtered and added color, if yeah. I taste a sweetness in it, if I taste a caramel in it, a toffee in it, you start to think I start to think that's probably the added color. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry about that, but that's just no, no, I, 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 that is just what's yeah. What I, well, it's just what I think. I think if I was being totally dis- disregard, let's, my, let's disregard the thought. I think, yeah, I think, okay. added color. Okay, like, right, totally disregard that. Yeah. The nose, sweet smoke. Yep. Lemon meringue pie, caramel. Maybe a touch of kind of grassiness, herbiness, maybe basil. Yeah. Um, I took a taste but I'll take a taste again so in the nose for me what I'm getting vanilla as you were saying caramel toffee a little bit of nuttiness a little bit of maltiness in there rhubarb 
Right. Quite sweet as well. Yeah, uh, sweet. And I thought just a little bit hint of sort of warm, sort of maybe a little bit of burnt leather, something like that in there. They burnt the caramel when they put it in. <laughs> yeah, they may have. Uh, I'm sorry, I won't mention it again. I think, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, a little bit of hints of leather on the nose. Uh, for you on the, the taste, the palate, what did you start to get there? So, first, the kind of mouthfeel, mm-hmm. I think it's quite watery mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I think it's quite weak mm-hmm. uh, probably because it's two thirds of the bottle or water <laughs> you're getting a decent bit of smoke there but medium I would I would think yeah yeah and I'm struggling to taste much in this whiskey over yeah. to something that was on the taste lightly spiced a little bit of sort of volcano spiciness in there creamy vanilla tones apricots I actually got on the, the, the sort of maybe in between the sort of taste and the finish and probably more than the finish actually with a sort of or I wrote a waft which is yeah if you want waft of a very sort of light cigar smoke in there right okay so to continue on with a little bit of Glen Murray we ended it's like 1958 but Glen Murray started releasing single balls around 1976 it was McDonald and Muir's experimental nature within their mind, I guess. Um, they started to really experiment with wood finishes, second maturation, cast maturation, and really started to uh, experiment with it right. around the late 1970s, which is also something they did with Glen Morangi as well. Okay. Um, they sort of took both practices and sort of really went and thought, right, we'll experiment with different woods, wine finishes especially. Um, so at that time, that was probably, it was an experiment because now when you hear people saying, I'm, we're experimenting with wood finishes, we put it in a, I don't know, some Tokai or something like that, like a Hungarian yeah. wine. It's, yeah. it's, it's not really experimental, but probably 1970s, that was late quite 90s, experimental, late, wasn't it? Late 1970s, early 80s, I think this would have been quite experimental. Yeah, it would have been. Um, so... They eventually came out in the 90s with the non-age Chardonnay and a 12-year-old and a 16-year-old, I'm going to say, Shenanin? Shenan? Shenan, I might have butchered that. Like a Shenan Blanc? A Shenan Blanc. Um, They came out with that in 1999. Wow, that is experimental because you don't see many white wine uh, cask uh, whiskies. So so in this period, they, they they were experimenting. And as you say, just now, if... Tell you what, sorry, tell you what else is experimental. To come out with a non-age statement. At that time? In the, was it the 90s? 1999, yeah, late 90s, yeah. A single malt non-age statement. In a white wine cask, finished. Didn't become fashionable until the t- t- 2010s, late 2010s, when yeah. they started coming out with their non-age statements. Now it's totally acceptable. Yeah. Uh, but in the 1990s, that's, I'd, I'd say that is experimental. Yeah. But, but, so they were, and that's what I've actually put down. It, it, this is well before their time, or well before the time that wood finishes or cast maturation or second maturation were really, really heavily talked about. Yeah. Um, which was quite interesting in, in, in what they were trying to do. Uh, both distilleries, uh, Murray and Morangi to shorten them, uh, were acquired by Louis Vuitton and Moore Hennessy in 2004. Yeah. So. At that point, you're thinking Louis Vuitton and Moe Hennessy taking over your distillery. You're thinking they're trying to make you into a big, fashionable 
luxury brand. Is that about the same time our good friend of the podcast, Dr. Bill Lumsden, uh, started at Glenmorangie and Ardbeg? Yeah, no comment on that one. <laughs> Your friend, the man you know personally. The friend of the show. Friend of the show. Uh, alleged friend of the show. Because um, I guess he might have. Uh, he, not, he might not think we're friends, but we, we see him as a friend. Yeah, so it was only four years later, 2008, that Glen Murray was actually sold to the current owners. Uh, oh, I'm going to butcher this name. Lad uh, Matina Kissi. Uh, I've not got it written down, but it's uh, yeah, it's La Martinique Cousse. We'll go with that. The uh, French company, yeah. a French company that I think you're safe to put a Cousse in it yeah. if it's French. Um, so uh, La Martinique Cousse yeah. is uh, France's large, the second largest spirits uh, group uh, behind. <sighs> I've took a wild stab at that. But, um, it's a good guess. I've yeah. in a spot. Yeah, so it's. Um, so it was, they themselves were originally founded in 1934 um, and have actually been family owned, as far as my notes go. Um, but they, as I say, the, large, the second largest spirit group, they own a number of different uh, brands throughout the world with. Um, Vodka gin, aniseed, cognac, calvados, into wines uh, and rums, um, uh, St. James and Riviere de Mar rums from Martinique and Reunion, uh, you may have heard of. Um, but their whiskey is probably where you would mostly have heard of these people from. Okay. Um, label 5. Pass on that one. Don't know label five. I don't. I don't. Should, yeah. I, should I know label five? I don't think I've ever heard of it. I've seen label five before, but most abroad. Was it like a airport whiskey or travel something? retail that yeah. sort of thing? Um, but then you may have heard of Cutty Sark. Cutty Sark, of course. Yeah, of course, Cutty Sark. Yeah. So they currently own Cutty Sark. Um, so they purchased both distillery. Or they sorry, they purchased Glen Murray in two thousand and eight. It was, um, they actually purchased Cutty Sark, as we were speaking about, from Edgerton in 2018. Right, I, I, that's what I was going to say. I thought Cutty Sark was, was an, Edgerton, uh, an Edgerton brand. So, because uh, Cutty Sark and um, Scotland's most famous son, poet, Ravi Burns. Yes. I think the Cutty Sark name and brand yeah. is. Um, Kind of fashioned on one of his poems. I want to say maybe Tamashanta. Yeah, but uh, I'll uh, don't quote us on that one. We're not I might need fact checked yeah. on that. So they actually purchased it from Edgerton in 2018, and from what I could see online, it was for an undisclosed sum. Now, my experience with undisclosed sums are through football. Yeah. So a football player, you don't need to disclose the fee in which you've purchased a human being for. Yeah. Um, unless oh, you purchased the contract, oh, the contract. Sorry, uh, uh, unless it's over ten million pounds or right. ten million pounds and above. Right. Okay. So I don't know if that is just a business thing or whether that's just in football, which is a completely different thing. Um, so to me, they purchased it for less than ten million pounds. They purchased Glenmorray for less than 10 no, million no, uh, La Martinique Cousse, yeah. um, purchased Cutty Sark from Edgington for less than oh, ten million pounds. Oh right, right. Into in twenty eighteen. In twenty eighteen, mm, I don't think that would be. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't think that would be possible. See, so that made me rethink my whole football analogy. But yeah, yeah. So they purchased it in twenty eighteen. I 
I don't think I've ever actually tried that sort. Of. I have. It's not as blended whiskey, but it's it's um. Is it? Is, would you traditionally say it's a bigger name outside of the UK, or is it? It's not one of the. Know, it's not one of the blended whiskies that famous guys Johnny Walker. Yeah, Alan, it's not. Black and white to go back a bit, but yeah, it's not. It's not the likes of like if you if you go to a supermarket, obviously, yeah, the Scotch whiskey uh, blended whiskey wise, you've got your famous guys, you've got your Bells, and you've got your other one that I can't remember the name of, but you've got kind of uh, you've kind of got three, right? Yeah, and then but then you've got blended whiskey brands like G and B or J and B, which you don't really see too much in Scotland, but it's very popular abroad. Potentially, Cutty Sark falls into that kind of bracket of being more popular abroad, but Cutty Sark was definitely a brand I would have been aware of. Like, to be fair enough, Johnny Walker more famous and more drunk outside of Scotland yeah. than inside of Scotland. Yeah. But it's, but it's one of the brands that's most associated with Scotland, yeah. outside of Scotland, you know? So... To end the sort of history and present future of Glen Murray, uh, in 2016 they recently put plans forward to expand further. Um, they introduced new washbacks, another pair of stills. And what kind of washbacks? I'm, I've not got that information, but going on what I'm about to say, I would presume they are stainless steel washbacks. Uh, to be honest, if they're being referred to as washbacks, they probably would. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I, I don't think you would mention that you're installing new washbacks unless they were wood. Unless they were wood, because a stainless steel washback isn't really called a washback. You know, yeah, uh, washbacks are wooden too. Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so right now, Glenn Murray, and this is what surprised me most when we were speaking about Bunnahan before. Mm. Glenn Murray produces just under six million liters a year. Yeah, that does not surprise me. Tasting the whiskey. Just thinking of how big Glen Murray is and I don't, all, I, all I, that. I, I don't know. I, I would imagine that Dunahaven is bigger than Glen Murray, production-wise. I think, that, from, that what, really I think from what you said there with uh, the name of the owner of yeah. Glen Murray. And who they are. Yeah. Uh, Martinique. Exactly. Yeah. French owners, Highland, Speyside, Single Mall. Mm-hmm. French consumers are the biggest consumer of blended Scotch whiskey. Right. That doesn't really surprise me that they've got such a big return because it's maybe a lot of it is going into blends. Yeah. Uh, and it's being transported to the likes of France or being transported to other countries. Yeah. Around the world. And for that, makes me like Glenmore more. You know what I mean? This is probably a whiskey that's worldwide and yeah. people maybe don't even know they're drinking Glen Murray. Yeah, yeah maybe yeah, they yeah. don't even know it. Yeah. And it could be, uh, I don't know, a 50% Glen Murray bre- uh, blend. Name, name something else. Name something else. Yeah. Or it could be some kind of more, I don't know, I'm going to say generic, but obviously Glen Murray is not a generic name. But I yeah. mean, if you, had, if, if, if you were going to sell a Scottish single malt a, abroad, you'd maybe go for a more generic name. Angus Mick. Uh, or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Nothing, that's nothing wrong with that. But as I say, that Glen Murray to us is like almost a, the epitome of Scottish whiskey distilleries is Glen Scotia, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's Glen. It's, 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 absolutely nothing but 
that company doesn't need my respect. Yeah. But, but you're they'll, throwing it out there as well. I'm throwing it out there. Like, I respect you. Though. I can't wait uh, to see that. I can't, I can't to... pronounce you, and that's because of my ignorance, but... I can't wait to that sitting on their website, uh, Martinique, could you? It's... Tom and Curry can't pronounce the name but respects us yeah yeah. I think that's that would work so way. going into the finish of this claim buddy what are you thinking Um, you know I'm going to take another wee sip I think we could confidently say from the dram throughout it's quite a weak and short finish yeah <laughs> I think we could confidently say from the dram throughout that definitely definitely 100% not Isla Petit no, not no at way, all. shape, or form is this Isla Pete. No, Isla Pete's got this phenolic note to it that I often think is quite a buzzword when it comes to peated whiskies. Yeah, as people say, oh, it's phenolic, no matter where it's from. But and you'll know more than this than yeah. I do. But it's not actually the phenolic compound within the peat. Yeah, I've got no doubt. I would say it's a guayaco. Yeah, yeah, so... Yeah, it's uh, that... From mainland peat, which is more present in mainland peated whiskies than Isla whiskies, which is more phenolic. Yeah. fennel. To be honest, I'm not not overly well-to-versed on the whole peat levels. I was actually reading uh, reading, um, Rob Arnold's book, uh, Terroir in Whiskey, uh, Distiller's Guide, uh, to flame and, and the part I'm reading is just about kind of peat and fennel so I probably should be more well versed in this Yeah. but I basically the differences in peat basically goes down to the differences in vegetation Yeah. that the dying vegetation has led to the creation of peat and it's all about it being uh, kind of heathery or it being kind of mossy or something yeah. you know what I mean Yeah. maybe in another podcast we can go into we can it I mean I, 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 I I would probably like to be uh, an absolute source on all things Scotch whisky. Yeah. But there's so much to learn. I can only do it on so one wee bit at a time. But yeah. tell you what, next time we do a peat whisky, I'll go into the, I'll go into the fennels of 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 whisky. It's as I was saying, it's, it's definitely not Isla peat, but this type of peat from the mainland tends to give you slightly more woody, smoky notes cinnamon clove spice those sort of flavours in there rather than that seaweedy iodine notes to it but that's not what we're getting here um, no, it's, it's a so. slightly different peat smoked and to be honest for what we're saying as a peated whiskey this is 14 ppm right okay so that would make sense yeah so very 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 soft on the peat smoke yeah it's not prominent it's peated Glenmurray but not a heavily peated or yeah. really medium peated whiskey. It's it's just a peated Glenmurray. It's more peated than their other whiskies that they do, which I think would probably resemble the tasting notes that we've put together as well. Yeah. Um, but in tasting this, and we move into the hotly contested whiskey league, Scotch whiskey league, Yes, let's move on to the SWL, the Scotch Whiskey League, the most contested league in Europe, yeah. if not the yeah. Western world, in all <laughs> sports and spirits. I don't think anyone could argue with that. Um, so the Glen Murray, we'll start with the last one we tasted. What we had was a 14 ppm Glen Murray, 
That's 14 ppm at the barley as well, not yeah. even what's in the bottle, which again, I think resembles or, or tasting what's from it. I got on the nose, vanilla, rhubarb, little bit of soft smoke, cigar box. I felt like repeated malted barley sugar. We've mentioned barley sugar before and how you can sort of get that sort of sweet nose, but I thought it was a little bit of smoke in there. Very, very subtle. Put meringue. Yeah, and a little bit of vegetation in there as well. Uh, on the palate, again, more rhubarb, sugary notes, vanilla notes, a little bit of apricots, and as I said, that sort of waft of very, very subtle cigar smoke there as well. Um, what about yourself, the Glen Money? Yeah, I thought I thought on the nose there was there was a sweet smoke. Uh, I got that kind of lemon meringue pie, a touch of uh, kind of caramel toffee. Uh, on the mouth, I got. Uh, I'll stick by it. I thought it was quite a watery, quite uneventful mouthfeel. I want a whiskey to kind of coat my mouth, probably coat my mouth for 10, 15, if not longer minutes. Have a little bit uh, more thickness about it? Yeah, I want it to be thicker. But, yeah. Uh, I do reckon that's just because it is at 40%. Uh, I did get a bit of fruitiness from it. Uh, I think you said kind of peaches, yeah, uh, that type of thing. Peaches, there was, yeah, there was a touch of fruitiness. There was a touch of kind of grassiness, herbaliness that you would get from a Speyside whiskey. Yeah, uh, and the finish very short, uh, uneventful. Yeah. So in terms of ratings, I may surprise people, uh, pre- uh, listeners um, of previous podcasts. I I would put this in the whiskey league, the Scotch whiskey league. Right now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Longrow Red, McNean, the Glen Scotia Port, Kleinleash, Ben Nevis, Tobermory, Ardbeg, Wee Beastie comes in at number seventh. I would then put this Glen Murray in at number eight. Yeah, I would. I would probably agree with you. But I would say this Glen Murray at number eight, and I thought the Ardbeg Wee Beastie would be the first one to drop out because I didn't think I'd taste anything that wasn't. Um, better than that or worse than that sorry but to me the Ardbeg looking back on the notes on the Ardbeg the Ardbeg just had a little bit more complexity about it even I didn't like the the, the amount of smokiness in there um, that put me off the Ardbeg but it just had a little bit more going in the, the, the palate really the mouthfeel as you're talking about it was a lot thicker it had a lot more going on for me the Glen Murray not necessarily a, I would say, I know you might think different, but not necessarily a bad whiskey. It's not a bad whiskey. It's just not got the complexity to it that I would rate it higher than the Ardbeg. Yeah, I kind of agree. What I d- disagree with you there is in terms of the Ardbeg. I did, I did, did think, although it's called Ardbeg, uh, intricate wee beastie, I do think there was quite a lot of smoke. Yeah. What I meant by that was it had more to it than just smoke. And I think that's kind of what you're saying as well, is it had a bit of complexity. Yeah. It had a lot of complexity. Uh, but this isn't about the Ardbeg, this is about the Glen Murray. Yeah. I thought that this whiskey didn't have much mouthfeel from it. Uh, I thought, uh, you told me after I tasted it, it was 14 ppm. I probably would have 
I like this whiskey more if it was 40 ppm yeah 48 ppm or something i think it probably would add more about it because i think without that smoke it had very little about it yeah. and you said you didn't think it was a bad whiskey yeah i don't i don't think it is a bad whiskey yeah i just think it's definitely not what i'm looking for in a whiskey yeah, yeah. But, and but it's i just don't think it has I just don't think it has much complexity. I just think it's got a wee bit of fruitiness. It's got a wee bit of smoke. It's got a tiny bit of mouthfeel. It's not. It's not. It's not really got much of anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> but but what I would say for for under twenty pounds, which you bought it for. Yeah, that that is true. That's what I was going to come on to say for. It was eighteen pounds. This cost me. It was yeah. on. It was on sale, but it was it was eighteen pounds. Um, I would say that's very cheap. For a Scotch single malt whiskey, yeah, but I'd say it's probably about worth that price. The the, the point I would make on it uh, being eighteen pounds, where I purchased it from, would I buy it again? No, right. Mm. I don't think I would. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You would have bought it the first time. No, but, probably uh, not. Probably not because when I went to the supermarket looking for a single malt, when I was looking for the best single malt I could find in the supermarket and I looked at other single malts uh, at 40% you'll probably find and I know there's better single malts at 40% out there there's there's probably lots more I've tasted Glenmurray before I think it's a really good whiskey I think the spirit's really good yeah I've I've tasted loads of single cask and I know single cask is all you're getting, but single cask can be good. Single cask can not be good. bad. Yeah. But I, it's it's a spirit that's got decent complexity to it. Yeah, it's got yeah, a lot yeah. of. It's probably like if you think of like Speyside whiskeys, Glenmorey falls into that bracket of good floral, fruity yeah. spirits with yeah. a lot of character and a lot of complexity. That's but I just don't think this is a good representation. But that's probably why it costs eighteen pound. That's that's essentially what you were saying there is why I bought it. It was everything I've previously tasted at Glen Murray and the name of Glen Murray and everything about it is something I've enjoyed before. It's something I've liked. It's, and I wanted to see what this was offering. Um, yeah. I think there is a place for it. I think people will enjoy it for what it is mm-hmm. very lightly peated easy to drink it's probably a good introduction to peated whiskey for think, somebody that doesn't like peated whiskey yeah I would put, I would put it in that category mm-hmm. I just think on the whiskies that we've tried already which are a lot of them are either cult distilleries in the sense uh, that Leash, yeah. Benevis or they're very unique yeah. in what they do the yeah. red long red the McNean Clay Scotia they are big yeah. they're unique in what they do I, 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 I just don't I, think it falls in the same bracket as them if we were to break it down further the Scotch Whiskey League and what we were trying to do I think possibly the, 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 Glen be, Murray, the Glen Murray wouldn't be it would be championship it wouldn't be in the same league not better or worse but it just wouldn't be compared to the these whiskies that we've already tried yeah. so I think we're, we're probably settled in it coming in eighth yeah but for you, the Bunnahaven, right. what are you thinking for that? So for the Bunnahaven to run through my tasting notes, I thought it was a wee bit kind of 
fresh in maybe a wee bit young on the on the nose, but that's to be expected from a supermarket whiskey. I would I would suggest it had a lovely kind of salty sea green kind of feel to it on the nose. You had dark berries, blackberries maybe. Uh, there was a slight sweetness of toffee and I think a natural sweetness since it's until filled with natural colour. I like it. But uh, we did go through, and I don't want to go into it again, that I think it has flavours that aren't typical of a sherry cask and I think that's maybe down to it being second fill sherry cask and potentially down to that sherry cask being made of American mm-hmm. oak yeah. instead of European oak, which I have nothing against. That just made it ever more interesting for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, on the palate, I thought it was very oily, mm-hmm. which might be down to the straight neck and no oggy. Yeah. Because that would create a more dense and a more oily yeah. spirit. Uh, I had a nuttiness. Uh, I had a lovely kind of dried peach, uh, nut shaving, raisin, you know, one of those kind of mixed bags. You can get in the kind of in the supermarket alongside your uh, Bunhaven. Mm-hmm. Um, spiciness I had kind of all spice, kind of star anise, clove, that type of thing. Finish wise, I thought the finish was all right. I thought the finish was not great. I thought yeah. it was just all right, but it was lo- it was long. Yeah, which is kind of the first indicator of being a decent finish but I just don't think it offered too much but it was a long finish which I enjoyed it had saltiness and it had a spiciness what did you think of it what was your run through of it hey so I actually really really enjoyed it I thought I I actually thought that it was for what we're speaking about price I know know we'll probably go into comparisons at the end but I thought for the price of it it was really really nice but on the nose Dried fruits, coastal notes, got a lot of butterscotch, a very creamy nose, vanillins, almonds. I actually put down Greek yogurt. I don't know how many times I've uh, nosed Greek yogurt or smelt Greek yogurt, but I thought there was just this really fresh creaminess to it. Yeah. Do you not have do you not have the old classic of kind of Greek yogurt mixed berries and granola and granola? That touch is, of honey on top maybe that is, is probably, maybe what this whiskey tastes that like is probably the the perfect representation of what the nose on this whiskey yeah, is I, like I would actually agree you would have thought I, I'd thought of that before this but I haven't actually <laughs> uh, yeah, it's got that Greek yogurt the berries the dried fruits a little bit of raisins in there a little bit like it's 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 that it's got a what a Greek yogurt granola nose with fresh summer berries yeah it's that's what it's got on the taste more nutty nuts coming through a little bit more of the sherry influences we're speaking from the first fill the mock of the coffee the, the plantains um it's ground coffee melted butter brown sugar coming through yeah on the on the on the palate um the finish i thought it was long but it didn't do anything I thought the yeah, I would I would agree there. Like the, yeah. the when you take sometimes when you taste whiskies, the, the the taste and the finish the finish will develop other flavors, and it'll differ. Yeah. From the from the taste, yeah. but for me for this it was a continuation, but in a, a slightly sort of subdued level. It was just 
it was sort of petering out. Yeah, I thought it, it was, was long. Uh, it was lasting. Yeah, but it just petered out in complexity, I guess. Yeah. It just sort of waved out and it was nothing in the end. But it, it didn't invoke any flavours that I thought, oh, this is really surprising or this is different from the, the, the finish. Um, but I actually really, <laughs> actually really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, I, I would like to make a like this whiskey was bought from the supermarket. It was thirty to thirty-five pounds, I think, maybe thirty-three pounds, right? I think this would be an ideal whiskey to sit with friends and yeah. drink and discuss because of the first fill and second fill sherry cask kind of aspect because it's 46.3% it's unchill filtered it's natural colour yeah. you know, this this would be the perfect whiskey to have a discussion with your whiskey liking they don't have to be whiskey lovers and they don't have to be like they don't have to be whiskey snobs we'd like to think ourselves as not whiskey snobs but like I think it generally would be a very good conversation starter. I think it would be a very easy drinking whiskey with enough flavour. And maybe a whiskey for somebody who likes whiskey and they're trying to convince their friend to try a whiskey that's maybe a wee bit different. It's not just yeah. raw and it's not just full-on smoke, you know what I mean? It's quite, it's quite a complex that's whiskey. I think where this whiskey fits into that category to where if you're sitting with people that drink whiskey, and drink whiskey regularly that you could sit down and have a conversation about this you could sit down and have a conversation about this whiskey whether it's the cast maturation where it is in Isla and uh, the coastal notes and everything coming through and you could have a real conversation about it but it's also a whiskey that you could give to people that maybe don't drink a lot of whiskey and it's got the two different levels to it to where there's enough complexity about it to where you can have a serious conversation about it. Yeah. It's, also or, it's also a whiskey you could sit and just drink and enjoy with friends that maybe don't drink whiskey a lot. Uh, and it, it, it puts itself in that category, whether it is meant to or whether it's not meant to, but it's put itself in that category, I think, for me, that it's a very good category to be in. Do you think it's worth the money? Do you think it's worth the money? We spoke about Glen Murray being worth the money. Do you think this uh, uh, Bunahaven Studadar uh, is worth the money? I think the Bunahaven is worth the money. Mm-hmm. And I would say to anyone to buy the Bunahaven mm-hmm. over the Glen Murray. Is the Glen Murray worth £18? Yes, probably. Is the Bunahaven worth the amount of money it's saying? Well, yeah, I would. Yeah, um, would I rather buy the Bunahaven over the Glen Murray in this instance? Yeah, I think the Bunahaven is a much better whiskey to uh, yeah. try over. And in saying that, where would you slot it in in the whiskey league? So we put uh, we put the Glen Murray down at the bottom, but beneath the Ardbeg. Where are you putting the Bunahaven? So th- this is this is actually quite hard for me uh, because. I like the Scotch Whiskey League to be controlled by flavour. Yeah. But I don't think it's as easy as that. And I think that is showed in some of the places we've been. Yeah. Uh, that have that have kind of uh, some of the whiskies have placed in the Scotch Whiskey League. Because whiskey isn't just all about flavour, but we like to be as flavour focused as possible. Yeah. Um, I've got no emotional ties to Benavon. Yeah. I do think it's a very good whiskey. Yeah. And I'm struggling 
do I think it's better than the Ben Nevis? No, I don't. So it's not above fifth place. Right. Do I think it's better than the Tobermory? I'm really, really struggling to, yeah, uh, to, to decide. For me, I would put it between the Tobermory and the Ben Nevis. That's where I'm putting it. Yeah, I think the... I just think it's more complex. The 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 ability that it's got, and I know what you're saying about solely focusing on the flavour profile of the whiskey and letting that drive your ratings, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think it's been clear in other podcasts that I don't let that happen. Yeah. Um, I would. I think the 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 aspect, the best aspect of the Buddha Haven is that you can try it with many different types of whiskey drinkers. Yeah. And it's accessible to pretty much and a lot of whiskey drinkers in terms of price point yeah. and in terms of being able to find it in the supermarket. Yeah. You know? And and for me that's that's a that's well in fact maybe see insane in I've actually just convinced myself I would put it between the Ben Nevis and the Kleinleash. I'd move it up one and I would put it in there because the Ben Nevis was very 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 good and I liked it and enjoyed it and it wanted to try more Ben Nevis but it's not available where this is as good as the Ben Nevis I think but is more available is possibly easier to be enjoyed by many different stages of whiskey drinkers so I would put it between the Kleinleash and the Ben Nevis I preferred your previous opinion and I'll tell you why <laughs> it's not as good as the Ben Nevis I don't think um, flavour wise complexity wise oakiness I think Ben Nevis is better I really really do do you, I, not, do you not think that Ben Nevis has got the, the room to be better but the Ben Nevis then isn't better it, I, but it's got the ability to be better. I think if we tasted a Buna Haven 12-year-old, it probably would slot in above the Ben Nevis. But I think the Buna Haven uh, yeah, is just below the Ben Nevis and just above the Tobermory. I, I, I really feel that strongly about the Ben Nevis being a very, very good whiskey. Right. Well, I've tried. But yeah, we can... We can settle on it being in between the Ben Nevis and the Tobermory. That's fine. Yeah, to be honest, I'm not going to lie. See the best thing I've tasted tonight? Was that red ale? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, probably <laughs> was. Probably was. I thought I've, I've kept a bit throughout the whole podcast. I think that's probably the best thing I've tasted all night. The Galway Bay Red Ale. Um, and that's the Galway Bay? The Galway Bay Red Ale from the Galway Bay Brewery. Only since 2009 have they been operating, but I think that is probably the best thing I've tasted all night. Right. Well, we'll go a quick run through through the SWL. Yeah, let's finish off with so that. So it's Long Row Red, yeah. Family at the top, Nightmean, second place. Third place, Gwen Scotia, 14-year-old, Podcast. Fourth place, Kleinleash. Fifth, Ben Nevis, 10-year-old. Sixth, Bunahaven, Suridar. Yep. Seventh, Tobermory, twelve year old. Eighth, Ardbeg, Wee Beastie, and ninth, Glenmoray, Peated, Elgin, Classic. 
Anyway, that's the end of the set podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show, guys. See you later. See you later.